Let's pray together this morning. Father of mercy, we bow before you humbly as a people, thankful. Thankful for your many, many blessings on us as we just completed a week where we try to slow down and think about the blessings that you've blessed us with. It's just a good reminder as we're singing together that all praise and glory and honor are due your great name. And as we turn to your word now, we ask that we would continue to worship you through better understanding you through what you've told us. And as we look together at Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, pray that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are receptive to, to what Jesus would have for us. He, there's no greater orator, no greater speaker that ever existed than Christ, and everything he does is magnificent and encouraging and can also be difficult and hard, and all of these things come when, when the creator of the universe speaks. So we need new hearts. We need minds that are open. So we ask for those, and we know your spirit is willing, and he, he meets us in these places, and so we'd ask that you would move now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today, we're going to continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, if you'd like to join me in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue in uh, what is a, a rocket ship speed through the book of the Sermon on the Mount. Today, we're going to be looking at just seven verses. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 5, 31 through 37. And to remind you, as we, we get there, uh, Jesus made this comment back in chapter 5, verse 17, where he says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he goes on to say, in verse 20 of, of Matthew 5, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And then what he does from there is he... He, he starts to break off into these six different sections to try, to not try, but to go ahead and explain what does it look like for your righteousness to need to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he, we looked at them in two parts. Each, or we looked at two different paragraphs. Last time we looked at the, the anger and lust section in verses 21 through 30. And so we could say that he started by looking at the ways in which our attitudes or our thought life might condemn us, which is one we maybe don't think about very often, right? We don't think about the fact that the way we think, the motivations that we have, the, the, the actions that we take based on our hearts, we might, we might forget that our hearts betray us. And in so doing, he reminds us or shows us that that is a way in which we... we we might sin, which we might not think about. And today we're going to look uh, at, he's going to move into this idea of our word. Do we keep our word? Let us remind ourselves that the Sermon on the Mount is not a manifesto of how to enter the kingdom, but how disciples or committed followers of Jesus Christ live once they have entered the kingdom by faith. Because in these sections, Jesus is elevating the law and the requirements of the law to show the hard-hearted Jews and all sinners of all time that following God's law is not a simple task. And many of the practices that the Pharisees 
did and many of the ways we try to negotiate with God today fly in the face of, of God's commands and God's standards and how we should understand his law. So that is true as we look at the topics today of divorce and oaths. So let's read those verses together now. They say this in verse 31 of chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So let's look first at what Jesus is saying here about divorce. And let me begin just by saying a few things on the topic. Uh, any discussion about marriage and what the Bible says shouldn't start with what are the acceptable ways to dissolve a marriage. We start with saying this, that all Christians affirm that the primary purpose and the best ideal for our marriages is that two become one and a marriage lasts for a lifetime. So though we are seeing this passage using marriage and divorce as a teaching point, let's make sure that our, our heads are in the right spot as we, as we come to it. Because honestly, we all know the facts and figures, right? About 50% of marriages today end in divorce, which means that every other person sitting here this morning has been affected directly or in, indirectly by divorce. It's just a reality. It's where we all are today. This also means that it's an incredibly relevant topic, and it can be very hotly debated, especially so in Christian circles, which is interesting. And I understand that, and Jesus knows that too, and, and I'm not actually going to weigh in on that debate today, not because I don't think it's important, and not because I, I think the Bible isn't helpful. I think it is. I'm not going to dive into the debate entirely because I think Jesus picks up this topic again in Matthew 19, and I think that's a better text in this book to look into that topic specifically. So here in chapter 5, uh, the argument is abbreviated. It's shorter than it is in, in the rest of the book, and I think it serves a different purpose. And it's a purpose that we're going to look at together. But for now, just know that there will be a fuller discussion. We can look more and talk more about the actual topic of divorce uh, when we get to chapter 19, Lord willing. So let's look at specifically what, what Jesus is and is not doing here with this topic when, as he's speaking to the Pharisees. So remember, his, he's, his the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to disciples. He's speaking to people that have a culture that they live in. They have things that they believe, truths that they've been taught. And we begin by seeing in verse 31 that he is quoting Deuteronomy 24. So if you'd like to join me in Deuteronomy chapter 24, let's look at that together. Starting in verse 1, it's really a full paragraph. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of her house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband 
who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination to the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So a couple of brief observations about what we see in Deuteronomy 24. We see that, that this certificate of divorce was being written when there was no, uh, this idea of no favor or there's some indecency found. We see that uh, if you're divorced, you can't come back. So the context of Deuteronomy 23 and 24 are, are laws for the land and, and structuring culture as well as religion. We also see that I think part of what this law is, is, is helping them to see is that we shouldn't make a hasty choice in issuing this certificate of divorce. So there's this, this parameter in the law that allowed for this separating of ways for really what, what are somewhat indescript reasons, not super clear. And aspects of the original law had to do with Israel's hardness of heart and making provision for the breaking of marriage vows, right? So it's this idea that God kept order in the society by having laws in place like this. So how is it being used in Jesus' day? What is Jesus doing with this, this aspect of the law? And so most scholars that study the time between the Old and the New Testaments in Jewish culture and the teaching of the rabbis at that time tell us that this law really ran off the rails, there were two factions of Pharisees, and one was somewhat strict on the matter of divorce, but the other was very liberal, meaning they could take the word indecency in Deuteronomy 24, and it could be as superficial as a funny look or not cooking meals properly. So it got very, very murky, and it was very easy for this, this certificate of divorce to be issued for ways that were not um, very apparently sinful in themselves. So this is the background and the cultural practice of Jesus' day, which doesn't sound too far off from our own day, right? 1969 in California is the first time that the, the phrase no-fault divorce became law in the U.S., meaning that until 1969, it was uh, against the law to dissolve your marriage without cause. And back then, the causes had to be considered legally legitimate in the court system. So we, we understand this in our own culture. We see that it was happening in Jesus's culture. But what Jesus is doing is he's flipping the script on the system here in his culture. The super religious, those people whose righteousness we must exceed, right? That's, that's the whole idea here is that there's this righteousness that everybody thinks they need to keep. And these people that are keeping them they, this, this religious group were allowing certificates of divorce to be written for basically any and every reason that they wanted. So what they were doing was they thought they were following the law, right? They, that the part, part of their holiness was we were offering legitimate, holy ways to dissolve marriages. But what does Jesus do? He actually only gives one serious reason for the, for the dissolving of a marriage. He says back in Matthew 5 that only sexual immorality would warrant divorce. All other reasons fall away here. So again, Jesus is pulling the curtain back and he's saying, you people who follow this religious elite think that, that you're following God's law. You think you, you've got your, your finger on the heartbeat of what, what God says is right. But I'm going to up the ante and say, really, there's only one. One way that this works out for you. He could have said anything there. He could, he could have said anything regarding any sort of aspect of the law, and he said that only one was warranted. And this makes sense, I think, to us. We get that. Um, but I will say this. Once this topic does get picked up again in Matthew 19, listen to 
just the disciples' response after his teaching. In verse 10 of 19, he says, The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. So just think that these religious people, these, these followers of Christ, even his own disciples, say, Jesus, if this is your teaching, it's better for us to stay single. So do you see how pervasive the teaching was in their day? If, if you can't divorce for any reason that I want, we shouldn't even marry, they say. So isn't that interesting that Jesus' own disciples saw this as, as such a, a stark difference from what, what was happening in their culture? But notice also this back in Matthew 5. Jesus says that if you divorce your wife for anything outside of sexual immorality, he is making her commit adultery. So when he divorces her for an invalid reason, Jesus is showing how the law demands commitment. And he's holding marriage high to the highest of standards. Saying this, by breaking your marriage, by divorcing your wife for some reason that was allowable in the day, it's actually a grievous sin. You're following the law to the letter, but, and you think you're being holy by issuing certificates of divorce, but that's not righteous. It's quite the opposite. This is an exclusively Christian idea, especially in the ancient world. In Roman culture, the man was basically never wrong to divorce his wife and a woman could even divorce her husband, couldn't, couldn't even divorce her husband in the Roman culture. So even in the law in Deuteronomy 24, God is protecting and valuing women. And what's happening in the culture of Jesus' day was not meeting the spirit of the law, which was the issue. The standard Jesus is holding up here is committing to your promises. So again, if we're thinking about what, what, is, what is Jesus using the teaching on divorce, divorce and teaching of taking oaths, he's talking about how do we keep our promises. He's saying to the Pharisees, you think you're doing something better than being committed. You're following the law in Deuteronomy 24, but you're missing the spirit of the law entirely. And many of us have been Christians here for a long time, so we, we probably already have a high view of marriage, but it's always good to be reminded of this. So what is Jesus doing here when he's using divorce as an example for the righteousness that we must exceed? I think he's showing us that God's standard of commitment is much higher than the Pharisees were teaching. So he's doing two things at once. He's exposing their practice as being too weak and not fitting the spirit of the law. And the second thing he's doing is he's elevating the marriage covenant. He's saying, you're breaking the seventh commandment when you issue a certificate of divorce for the reasons you're issuing. So this isn't about protecting the covenant of marriage to you. It's not about protecting women to you. It's about ease and sin and not keeping your word. You're following the legal code that Moses' law allows. But your sinful hearts are finding any indecency you want to not honor your commitments that you have made to your wife and to God. So when you come to a marriage, you commit. You, you go all in and you do what you say you're going to do. You're taking a vow. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. That's why I think they go together. But in marriage, it's often called a covenant. Think of Genesis 2.24. You're becoming one flesh. It's a bond that's unique in this life. It's intimate, and we never, want, we never want to see it broken. That's the ideal, right? That's the standard Jesus holds up. He hints at it here, but he'll be more explicit in chapter 19, which we'll look at 
down the road, but he's saying that breaking up this marriage is actually breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So what should we draw from this today? Hopefully it's having the same effect on us as, as it did on them first. We should uh, elevate our view of marriage. When you think about marriage, either yours or the institution itself, what informs your understanding of it? Are you a, a Genesis 2 person? Do you see it as two becoming one flesh as, as, as once for life? Or are, are we allowing the world to tell us that anything and everything will do? It's a serious commitment that we should seek for the rest of our life to commit to, as opposed to bailing out for any and every reason possible. So let us be informed by the word and not the world. There will always be people and policies in this world that will tell you that your commitment isn't worth keeping. But let me remind you that it is. Commitment to God through the covenant of marriage is a commitment worth keeping because God says it is. Second, and, and hear me on this, we are seeing the impossible standard that Jesus is holding us to in this command, right? That's, that's what he's doing. He's showing us righteousness. Marriage is not easy all the time. It's even the best marriages have rough patches and difficult seasons. We are sinners married to sinners. Left to our own sinful flesh, we want to bail out of our marriages. And in fact, 50% of even Christians do. So it is truly impossible to stay married without God's enabling grace. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but at least to have a God-honoring marriage, that is what is required. It's impossible without his grace. And maybe you're here this morning and you've been touched by divorce. And a text like this brings up questions for you, and that's understandable. And I want to remind you this. There is no unforgivable sin, and divorce is no different. There are countless ways divorces happen, countless scenarios, countless situations, and Jesus, is, Jesus offers grace and mercy for all kinds of situations. But remember, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and this section in particular, is about showing us that our own righteousness needs to be to the level of perfection to get entrance into heaven by our own deeds. Right? That's the whole point. The Sermon on the Mount is telling us that, that our righteousness needs to exceed perfection if we want to enter heaven by our own works. But we're not saved by works. Praise God. You are also not excluded from God's salvation because of your marital status or your past. If you have been divorced, no matter what the circumstances, Christ's blood covers all. And there is redemption and reconciliation at the cross. So take heart and know that God is for you. He has ordained every step in this life and in your life, even those paths that you wish you didn't have to walk down. Those are paths that he walks with you through to bring you to the foot of the cross. If you're remarried, the covenant of marriage is a gift of God. So walk in a manner pleasing to him in your marriage. Whether we've been divorced or not, we all are called to rely on the grace of God to commit to our marriages today for the glory of God and for his name. The words of Jesus cut us open. Maybe his teaching on divorce is doing that to you today, but maybe the topics of anger and lust last time cut you open or come back together the next time we're together and maybe loving your enemies and not taking your own revenge might be aspects of the law that might cut you open. The word of God cuts you open. It might not be this sin. It might not be that sin. It might be a different one, but it does that because it's supposed to. But remember what the words of, of, of Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. He said this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So if you're like me, when you're confronted by your sins, I remember this verse. 
I feel like oftentimes I am the foremost of sinners. I'm the biggest sinner in my life, in my home, in my family. I feel like it's, it's always me, always carrying more and more sin than everyone around me. But rest in this truth. God saved Paul, and God has saved countless others. And we all are sinners in need of a Savior. This is the good news of the gospel. Christ came for us. He knows our sins. He knows our pasts, but he holds our futures. And in Christ, our future will lead to fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore in his, in his presence. But that's only half of this section that we're looking at today. So let us look now at verses 33 through 37. And Jesus now tackles the aspect of taking oaths. It's a hard word to say, oaths. In keeping with the keeping of your word theme, Jesus confronts this task of taking oaths. And this one's an interesting one because in verse 33, when it says, Again, you have heard it said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That's really a kind of a, a coming together of a lot of different Old Testament verses. It's not one specifically. You could go to Deuteronomy 23, 21, Numbers 32, Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6. There are many different locations where this idea of not swearing falsely or if you swear to the Lord, you must, you must follow through with it. So there's just many, many verses that basically say that you shouldn't swear to God or when you do, it is now a vow and it must be paid. It must be paid. The idea was that if you vow something to the Lord, you complete it because it's actually an act of worship. But how was this being used in Jesus' day? Well, unlike the background we needed for the topic of divorce, Jesus addresses this in a woe passage that he gives to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. So if you want to turn with me to Matthew 23, starting in verse 16, we see a little bit about as Jesus is going to write to the Pharisees, speaking to the Pharisees, let us pick up a little bit about what, what this vow type of situation might have looked like. Verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple and by him who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So maybe you can pick up what, what's going on here. We're getting a little taste of how the Pharisees were splitting hairs to make their commitments more fluid. It's this intricate system of loopholes to basically condone lying and shady commitment practices. It's the same vibe that they were using to get out of their marriages, right? Whatever slick wordplay they could use was fair game to get out of any of their commitments. And again, you see the letter and not the spirit of the law is what's being looked at. The Pharisees agreed that swearing by God was serious, and basically, it was a vow that could be unbroken until you, until you did what you said you vowed to do. So they found different ways to skirt around it without having to make commitments. I found one of the commentators, uh, his view on this very interesting. He said, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I am really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it 
to cut it off from any of the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinary over, ordinarily overruns my speech. In fact, I'm saying even more than this. I'm saying that people are expecting me to lie from the start. And just because they are counting on my lying, I have to bring up these big guns of oaths and words of honor. So the Pharisees, they were liars. They had great ways and tricks to lie. And Jesus noticed, and so notice in his argument, so Jesus knows this, and when he's writing or speaking about oaths in verses 34 through 36, he shows how foolish it is to try to separate these oaths based on different aspects. So look with me at verse 34, chapter 5. It says, it says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, why? For it is the throne of God. Verse 35, or by earth, why? For it is God's footstool. Or by Jerusalem, why? For it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot even take one of your hairs and turn it from white to black. So do you see what he's saying? He's saying don't swear by creation, because creation is mine. You can also have no control over your own hair. You can't even control the hair growing out of your head. So you can't, you can't change as much as I would love to change some of the white in my beard back to brown. I can't do it. So you, you can't swear by these things. You, you have no control, so you have to stop swearing by these aspects. And they all ultimately roll up to God. Don't swear by creation because it's his. You know how we use this today, right? We, we've heard this stuff. I, I swear on my life. I swear on my great-great-grandma's grave. Cross my heart and hope to die. You've heard all that stuff. If you've been on one playground or you've seen, I mean, it's just out there. So again, it's another incredibly relevant topic, right? People do this. They, they feel like, well, this is the time you've got to really trust me, so I better say something extra to make sure you know that this is the time I'm being serious or I'm not lying. The question becomes to us then is like, why is this so important? Why does, why does truth matter? And I have, I have two basic thoughts here. First is a long quote from Mortimer Adler that didn't look that long when I was reading through my notes. So I'm just going to maybe... Uh, eyeball it here not, not, and save you some of it. But the idea is basically this. The question is, is it true? It can be asked of anything we read, anything that, that, we, that we write. It, it's, a, it's a big deal. Yet, strangely enough, in recent years, for the first time in Western history, there is a dwindling concern with the criterion of truth. Books win many, many awards from critics and gain widespread popular attention, almost to the extent in which they avoid the truth. The more outrageously they do so, the better. So what he's basically saying, and that book was written back in like the 40s or the 50s, but the idea is, here is he's talking about truthfulness in, in a book, and I think it applies all the more here even in our speaking. We need the truth to keep our bearings, right? Without truth, we can't know anything. Think about how hard it is to get the truth about a story if you weren't there. So think about eyewitness testimony. I find it incredibly fascinating that the way people determine if eyewitness, if eyewitness testimony is true, is, is, is it exactly the same, or are there variants that make sense? So we can't even necessarily, basically meaning this, if two people are in two separate rooms and they're telling the exact same story, you can tell that it is probably not the truth or it's concocted to, to be that way, right? Imagine, think of it like this, you have two kids, you, you, they, something breaks in the basement, they come upstairs, you, you, you go in one room, they go in that, you're, you're, you split them up, 
and they tell the exact same story. What's your first thought? This isn't true. Because they, they, they got their ducks in a row, right? What you want is you want some truth here, some truth there. That's the best we can do in our interrogation practices is to find out if there's enough variance to know that there's actual truth in there. Or think about the retelling of a story of your life. There's so much that we can embellish, and some of us do. I've been known to spin some yarn to my shame. I often don't let this, the facts get in the way of a good story. So we can all do that too. And the second aspect about truth, why I think it's so important to us, is that our God is, is the God who cannot lie. Titus 1-2. I think this is so important to us because it's part of God's base character. So we look for truth in his creation, which gives us that's Jesus' command in, in verse 37, where he says, let simply your yes be yes or your no, no. So he's saying, don't be evil and heap on oaths, but let your yes be just that. When it comes time to say no, don't vacillate, just, just say no. And do, you, do you remember how powerful, I mean, if you ever, maybe you've seen it in a movie or, or you've heard somebody talk about it. Do you know that old, that old farmhand that said, my handshake is all the contract that I need? That kind of integrity is when we feel at a deep level. It's, it's just powerful, isn't it? When someone says, we don't need to sign a contract, you shake my hand, my word is my contract. We crave that kind of commitment from others. Again, I think that's why this section connects with marriage so well is, is we crave that commitment from one another in all of our relationships. So Jesus is doing the same two things here that he did with the previous section. First, he's exposing how flimsy and weak the words of the righteous really were. They claimed peak righteousness, but in reality, they, they were weak and spiritually anemic. They needed the spiritual vitamin of truth because they were not practicing it. Second, he elevates the standard again to perfection. Every time we embellish, every time we say yes to something and commit and bail out, every time we let facts slip away from us to create a more verbal gray area, we're not upholding the standard God requires to enter his kingdom. So thanks be to God that we don't have to keep the standard to get in. Christ purchases that. But now we are commanded to pursue that level of commitment to our words and to truth. So may his grace abound in us. Let us be truth tellers. And finally on this topic, one funny little thing that comes up from time to time that I think we should address is what do we do about oaths civically or professionally? Does this text ask us to avoid taking oaths to say our country or to our profession uh, you know, famously, the Anabaptists and the Quakers would say, yes, you, you cannot commit to something and, and give, give an oath to something outside of the Bible. Uh, many Quakers wouldn't put their hand on a Bible if they were in court. If they were to give, to give testimony, they wouldn't do it. So the question is, is, is that the takeaway from this text? Is, is, there, is there a situation or situations that we shouldn't take oaths for? And, and I found Kent Hughes helpful on this. He said this, the context itself argues against such an abolitionist's understanding because Jesus' illustrations of abuses are from everyday common speech. Jesus' prohibitions are in regards to everyday conversation. But even more decisive is the fact that Jesus honored the official oath from Caiaphas when he broke his silence and spoke in Matthew 26. So you don't have to turn there, but when Jesus is in front of the high priest and they're asking him about being the Christ... 
in verse 63, he said this, Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Basically means, I, I command you by oath. Tell us, if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now Jesus speaks up in verse 64 and says, You have said so, but I tell you now, on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. So when Jesus was confronted with, with taking the oath to the high priest and saying, tell me, are you the Christ? He spoke up and answered them. So I don't think this section in Matthew 5 is about formal oaths, but more about our everyday speech patterns and the way we commit with our, our words. We should not need to swear to a higher authority because the view of our commitment to our word is so low. So feel free to become a doctor or a postman or a soldier. Those oaths are more than okay. So as we wrap up, I think the application of this text to our lives today is probably twofold. First, we have to understand that we cannot keep any of these commitments on our own. We just don't have the righteousness required to get any of this done. Jesus is consciously leading us to that point, so we have to see it. He's going to end chapter 5 with this haunting phrase, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you truly understand that phrase, it should keep you up at night. Because deep down, we know we don't have that kind of ability. If you're here today and you've never heard this, or you don't know Christ, this might and should be scaring you. John 15, 5 says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And that is painfully true about the standards being set up for us in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. So if that is you, if you've never put your trust in Christ, admit that you cannot hold up God's standard on your own. Confess that you have not lived up to God's standard in thought, word, deed, or motivation. Repent and turn to Christ. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Saved from the heavy burden of perfection, and saved to fellowship with your Savior and your God. Christ's work is what saves us. He lived this standard. He took our sins on the cross. He died for them. And he was resurrected, showing that God accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. So confess Christ with your mouth, and he will save you. And the second application for us who are walking with the Lord today, this was said actually in Sunday school, and it's actually what I wanted to say to you, is preach the gospel to yourself every day. If the Sermon on the Mount is reminding you that you too, even as a Christian, do not live up to God's standard, good. That is the point for you and me as well. We don't get zapped with perfection when Christ saves us. Not at all. It's a long, slow walk of sanctification. And we will stumble. So remind yourself of what Christ has done for you too. The cross isn't just for new believers. It's for us, for our entire lives. Remind yourself of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Is there a better text about the gospel? I don't know of one as it applies to this text today. Jesus has said that 
Righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And we're wondering, how do we run around and manufacture that kind of righteousness? We don't. We put on that kind of righteousness. That kind of righteousness is gifted to us through Jesus Christ alone. So we have a, a Savior who did not sin. He knew no sin, didn't experience it, doesn't know it. But what happens is God takes his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, and, and he gives it to us. Christ's death purchases his righteousness for us. And now we stand before God as sinners, as failures, as people that struggle with our words and our commitment. Even as Christians, we struggle with all of that. But when God looks at us, he says, you're righteous because Christ says so. You're righteous because what Christ has done for you. So we don't manufacture righteousness. We can't do that. We're not Pharisees. We're, we're, we are blood-bought, exchanged sinners who have a great Savior that in him we walk in newness of life. We walk a righteous life not because we continue to hold standards by our own power, but we walk as blood-bought saviors. It's never too late to be reminded of these truths as Christians. So hold fast to your Savior. He is all you need. Rejoice in him. Fellowship with him. Cast your burdens on him. Remember all of your sins have been bought by him. Past, present, and future. Be free. Run the race set before you and be full of the joy that comes only from God alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a great reminder. What a great reminder that the gospel tells us two things. It tells us that we are completely unworthy of the standard that you set. And yet your, your message of, of the good news is that Jesus was worthy. Jesus did live a worthy life. And his death, his burial, his resurrection purchase sinners like us, sinners like me, sinners who, whose commitments and words may vary and fluctuate like mine often do. But Christ, his righteousness is all you see. And you look on us and you say, there is follower. There is a son. There is a daughter because of what Christ has done. So may we rejoice in the truth that Jesus Christ came to save and redeem sinners. And let us also now by the power of Christ, with the righteousness that is given to us by him, may we walk in a manner that pleases you. Not in our own discipline or not that we're now trying to make ourselves more righteous after the cross, but that we would walk by the power of Christ Jesus through the Spirit who dwells within us. So may we leave this morning rejoicing that we are sinners who have an even greater Savior. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.